traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. A volatile world begets volatile financial markets. Does this explain investors' enthusiasm for tech stocks and IPOs, or is something else afoot? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, and coming up on today's show, Michael O'Leary, the ebullient boss of Ryanair, Europe's biggest airline, on how he reads the skies ahead. The theme of our advertising is vaccines are coming, book now for Easter and for summer 2021. And working from home had its advantages even in the 18th and 19th centuries. Monday, spun, doubled and twisted 10 knots stocking yarn. The emergence of capitalism, quite simply, took place in people's homes. First, even before the pandemic, financial markets weren't always easy to understand. But most of the time, you could point more or less straightforwardly to cause and effect. The stock market would bid up the share price of a firm that announced unexpectedly juicy profits. Bond yields might jump after strong employment figures. Geopolitical friction might send the oil price spiking, or sometimes slumping. But as in so many other ways, 2020 has been a year like few others. What you've seen across a wide variety of financial asset markets is things moving more quickly, more violently, or sometimes in sort of opposite directions than you might anticipate. Alice Fullwood is The Economist's Wall Street correspondent. As news of the pandemic spread in February and March, American equities sold off by 30% in as many days. Government bond yields initially went lower, as you'd expect. They're a sort of safe asset. But then they sort of spiked unexpectedly thanks to that market seizing up. Oil prices for those barrels that were imminently to be delivered briefly went negative. And even if you looked at sort of smaller, less heavily focused on other markets like the market for timber, they've just had wild years. So timber, for example, halved, then doubled, then redoubled, halved and doubled again. So it's now up double year to date, but it's been all over the place throughout 2020. And this abundance of leaps and crashes, halvings, doublings, and even sextuplings, if you look at the share prices of Tesla this year, have given investors whiplash and exhaustion. Can all of the ups and downs we've seen be explained just by shifts in in news or is there something else going on? So one of the stories that has sort of dominated discussions of financial asset markets in 2020 is this strange disparity between rising share prices and the sort of fragile macroeconomic conditions elsewhere. It's led a lot of people to suggest that perhaps there's a bubble in share prices or even in certain share prices like the big tech companies that have rallied very sharply. In order to dissect this, it's helpful to think about three different trends. One is the performance of cyclical assets. Uh, One is the performance of tech stocks, uh, especially through the summer. And the third is the role that interest rates might have played in affecting equity valuations. So if we start by looking at 
cyclical assets. Things like cyclical stocks, like restaurants and retail, commodities like oil and copper, they fell very sharply in in February and March, and they underperformed other assets through the summer as there was sort of tentative reopening. But since you've had the announcement of the vaccine, since you've had this sort of good economic news that suggests that the world might get to rights next year, you've seen a recovery in all of these very cyclical things. So those have been the best performing stocks in the S&P 500, these sort of retailers and restaurants. Uh, You also saw oil prices get above $50 a barrel for the first time since March. And tellingly, it was the near-term contracts that rallied the most, which suggests that people are expecting industry to be able to come back to life, perhaps a bit quicker than expected. Let's dig a bit more into the other two factors that you mentioned. How do you break down the causes of this remarkable rally there's been in share prices more broadly? Right. So the S&P 500 is now up about 15% year to date. And that return to equities is about triple the average over the past 20 years. And you can break that down into sort of different types of companies. So one would be the sort of quite typical or expected reaction that you've seen in cyclical stocks. But one of the most important factors driving share prices this year has been the performance of the tech companies. So at the beginning of 2020, Amazon, Apple, Alphabet, Microsoft and Facebook made up under 18% of the S&P 500. Now they're more than 22% of the S&P 500. And so if you X out those five companies from that overall return, that overall 15% return, then stocks would have gained just 6% in 2020. And that's because tech stocks in particular have benefited from the peculiar economic conditions of the pandemic. Right. So many of the big tech companies were expected to suffer a lot less than non-tech companies as everyone was forced to work from home and sort of online shopping became dominant. And many of them actually were expected to sort of benefit from those trends. So, you know, it's very difficult to know whether those firms are fairly valued, but it's at least logical or understandable that they've done very, very well relative to other firms this year. 6% without the tech companies, that's still not a bad return, given the turmoil that we've seen. How do we square that with the economic reality? Is this where interest rates come in? Yeah, so 6% is actually the average return for stocks most years. So it is sort of startlingly normal in a very abnormal year. I think this is where the role of interest rates is perhaps sort of underappreciated. So one way of thinking about the value of stocks or the value of a company is that it's its share price today should reflect the future value of of its dividends or its profits. Obviously, the pandemic was very bad for profits, but the discount rate is also very important, sort of how you convert future profits into present profits. And there was this enormous decline in interest rates in March uh, that was sustained for most of the summer. So at the beginning of the year, the long-term Treasury yield was about 1.8%. It fell to just 50 basis points or 0.5% by the end of March. And then it has climbed a bit since the good vaccine news. Yields are now at about 0.9%. And this can be hugely important in how you evaluate stocks. One way that you can look at this is there's a metric that Robert Schiller, the Nobel laureate economist, has devised that looks at sort of stock valuations relative to bond yields. And actually, that metric suggests that stocks have become more attractive relative to bonds through 2020, just because bond yields have fallen so sharply. So that actually implies that, you know, valuations for stocks are high, but they look pretty reasonable when you compare them to bond yields. Now, when the stock market gets so high, when asset prices more generally get so high, people start reaching for the B word very easily. What's the evidence this time? 
Yeah, it's always tempting to point to very rapidly rising asset prices and call bubble. And I think, you know, you have to do the due diligence of going through each of the potential logical explanations for why asset prices might be moving so quickly. The moves in cyclical stocks have been fairly sensible. You can understand why tech stocks might have got so so highly priced. And interest rates go a long way to explaining in general why investors have so much love for shares at the moment. There are other reasons you can point to why you might think that there is a bubble forming. So the sort of rise of retail trading in 2020 has been very, very powerful. At the same time, you've had this sort of frenzy in IPOs lately. But I think that once you sort of break down the drivers of, of overall market trends, it's not a slam dunk for the case that a bubble is here. Alice Fullwood, thank you very much. Thank you, Patrick. And before you go, I hear that you're on the hotly anticipated Money Talks Christmas <laughs> quiz show next week. Is this true? This is true. Um, it's a, a very jolly episode in which um, we sort of do a quiz. We do ask each other questions and, and people get them mostly wrong. But uh, it's very enjoyable to listen to. So I, I hope you tune in, Patrick. I'll do my best. Thanks again, Alice. Thank you, Patrick. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Next, aviation has been devastated by COVID-19. Air transport revenues had been expected to grow by about 4% this year. Now they're predicted to fall by half. Across airlines, airports and engineering, hundreds of thousands of jobs have been lost. All hopes now are pinned on the impact of vaccination programmes. But as airlines prepare for takeoff into 2021, some are looking more assertive than others. At the beginning of December, Ryanair, a low-cost carrier that is now Europe's most valuable airline, upped its order of Boeing 737 MAX jets from 135 new planes to 210 in a deal worth more than $22 billion. Our Schumpeter columnist, Henry Trix, recently spoke to Michael O'Leary, Ryanair's veteran and outspoken boss. I first met Michael O'Leary almost 20 years ago at a very kind of no-frills sandwich lunch. In some ways, he seems to have mellowed. There was uh, a bit less effing and blinding. I mean, he's still as livid as he always has been about state support for national airlines. But things have changed. Ryanair is a lot bigger than it was back then. It is today Europe's largest airline, almost as big as the owners of British Airways, Lufthansa, Air France, KLM and EasyJet combined. This time, instead of a sandwich lunch, I spoke to him by telephone and I asked him how the outlook for aviation appears from the cockpit of Ryanair. You know, what I say here now are not forecasts or predictions, but more, I think, of the, the nature of guesstimates. On the assumption that vaccines roll out reasonably widely, I think most of the travel restrictions get removed from Easter onwards. The ad theme of our advertising is vaccines are coming, booked now for Easter and for summer 2021. There'll be constrained capacity and I think reasonably strong pricing next year into next summer's peak. 
sustained recovery into next winter, winter of 21, spring of 22, and then a very strong recovery into the summer of 22, when I expect the long haul will also be coming back with some degree of confidence. So, Henry, confidence is clearly not something that uh, Michael O'Leary's ever been short of. What do you make of his big bet on the Boeing 737 MAX? There's no doubt it was a gamble, Patrick. This uh, 737 MAX was involved in two horrendous air disasters. It's been grounded for more than 20 months, but it has now been cleared by regulators to fly in America and, uh, and, and will soon get clearance in Europe. And Ryanair clearly believes that now it's one of the safest aircraft around. The gamble is really about the fact that some passengers will still be concerned about the safety of the aircraft and also about the strength of consumer confidence after the pandemic. Uh, This is how Ryanair managed to swing a significant discount from Boeing. If you're willing to step up and buy uh, these aircraft at this time, I think it deserves some sort of modest improvement in the pricing. Because, you know, and in a lot of cases, the way to restore customer confidence here on the max order is going to be discount the prices. 9.99 fares will cure an awful lot of customer apprehension about flying on the MAX aircraft. We should recall that this isn't the first time Ryanair has taken a gamble during an industry crisis. For example, in the aftermath of the terrorist attacks in, of 9-11 in 2001, when fear of flying was also very high, Ryanair put in its first bumper order for Boeing 737s. At the time, it was a huge gamble, but it helped catapult Ryanair into the big leagues in Europe. And Mr O'Leary must be hoping that this bet will pay off in a similar way. Are we taking a risk? Yes. But is it a reasonably calculated risk? I think it is. Remember, these aircraft come to us, they have 4% more seats, but they burn 16% less fuel. So they're greener, cleaner, more efficient to operate and carry more passengers. And if we can get them at a modestly discounted price to our existing fleet, then hey-ho, let's go. Despite the promise of increased efficiency and marginally greener flying, this strikes me as the position of a classic insurgent-turned-incumbent, a David that has become a kind of Goliath. Ryanair now has a huge stake in the preservation of the status quo, a return to the airline industry just as it was before the pandemic struck. Henry, as you say... Ryanair's position in the European airline industry is completely different from what it was 20 years ago. Then it was a minnow, it was an upstart. Now it's the biggest single player. So how will the pandemic affect the industry and how will it affect Ryanair's position in it? Well, Mr O'Leary is incredibly bullish. He thinks that Ryanair is in a fantastic position to expand as the travel industry in Europe recovers. So Thomas Cook, TUI and German Wings have closed. Alitalia and Lufthansa reduced their short haul fleets. Unlike many of Europe's national carriers, Ryanair actually hasn't received state aid to help it survive and it doesn't seem to have needed it. In his eyes, Europe will eventually be consolidated into four big groups, with Ryanair, of course, leading the pack, followed by the owners of British Airways, Lufthansa and Air France KLM. So that would be a similar structure to the American airline industry, i.e. three big kind of old style flag carriers and one low cost airline supreme. But there's no guarantee that Europe will follow the American flight path precisely. 
What about other changes that are coming to the industry? I mean, for example, last week, our sibling podcast on science and technology, Babbage, explored the potential of hydrogen power to provide a greener future for flying. To what extent is Ryanair thinking about those things? Well, Simon Wright, who's our industry editor, who was also on the call, he put that to Mr O'Leary. He asked him about the move by Airbus, Boeing's biggest aerospace competitor, to develop hydrogen planes by 2035. Mr O'Leary was was pretty nonplussed. The next round of technology, though, yeah, like we talk to them, but, you know, I lose interest in when I because it, it's far too much of an engineering getting their kind of nuts off and getting all excited about new technology. 2035 seems like it's very close unless there's some transformative, unforeseen step change in technology that, you know, none of us can foresee at the moment. But you don't foresee a step change in regulation that would force that change in technology? Human ingenuity has never been driven by regulation. He may be right to be sceptical about hydrogen planes, but the pressure to be greener, I don't think it's going to go away. The danger for Ryanair is that a boss who's so confident that he's seen it all before misses the fact that things may have changed, either because of the pandemic or because of other factors like climate change. Has he changed in other ways since you first met him? Do you think that Asian experience have, have mellowed him at all? <laughs> yes, I do. I mean, I, I asked him almost with a shade of disappointment whether he was still something of a Scrooge or had he now become a kind of um, a, a, a tame and genteel Santa-like character. And uh, there was a moment of only half-joking humility on his part. I think you had to be screwed to get to where we've gotten to today. But I would like to think now I have emerged out of like Scrooge on Christmas morning, realizing the error of my ways. We have to work with our people. We have to work with our unions. I have to be nicer to my customers. In addition to offering them the lowest fares, we have to offer them the most on-time flights, but with the lowest emissions and the lowest fuel consumption. That's going to be the way forward. Hearing that, you might think he's a changed man. I mean, he used to say the customer was always wrong, that unions were a busted flush, and that environmentalists should be taken out and shot. But as he knows full well, this is an airline industry that's full of risks. Uh, He has a phrase that sums it up. You would never go into the airline industry if you weren't somewhat of a risk taker or completely insane. A thanks to Michael O'Leary and to Henry Trix. And finally, in 2020, a large proportion of office workers have had to figure out how to do their jobs from home. For example, I record this podcast in a blanket fort in my loft. Our correspondents dial in from quietish corners, in wardrobes or laundry rooms. Interruptions by small children and pets have become routine. Now, this shift from office desk to kitchen table is often seen as uniquely modern, made possible only by digital technology. But if you look back through history, you'll see that the line between work and home life has often been a blurry one. Our senior economics writer, Callum Williams, explores the history of home working and finds some surprising parallels with the present day. Sunday, November 3rd, 1833. Finished boiling cider and made sweet applesauce. Sally Brown who was born in Vermont in 1809, had a typically varied schedule for a working woman of the time. 
We've boiled two and a half barrels of sweet cider and made half a barrel molasses besides some sauce. On other days, she tends to their animals, she makes clothing, and she refines wool for sale. She did all of these jobs from home. Working from home is actually pretty common in the historical record. And in fact, for the first century or so of capitalism, so really the sort of 1700s, it's pretty fair to say that working from home was the norm. The emergence of capitalism, quite simply, took place in people's homes. One man draws out the wire, another straights it. A third cuts it, a fourth points it. A fifth grinds it at the top for receiving the head. To use the most obvious example in a way, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, published in 1776, which is often seen as the sort of theoretical basis for, for capitalism in lots of ways, he has this classic example of the pin factory, which he describes in the opening pages. And the important business of making a pin is, in this manner, divided into about 18 distinct operations, which in some manufactories are all performed by distinct hands. The division of labour that Smith is describing is not in a dark satanic mill. He's describing what he calls a small manufactory. I have seen a small manufactory of this kind, where ten men only were employed, and where some of them consequently performed two or three distinct operations. And it could well have been in or attached to somebody's house. It's not easy to be 100% sure exactly how many people or who was working from home. You don't really have much reliable data until the mid-1800s or even, or even slightly ahead of that. So what you need to do really is look for other clues. If you think about the word house, obviously today it's a purely domestic idea. In the sort of 1800s and 1700s, it had a much wider connotation. For instance, warehouse or alehouse, that really is to do with economic production rather than domestic life. I mean, another example is in A Christmas Carol. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who in a dismal little cell beyond, a sort of tank was copying letters. The counting house is not Scrooge's house, it's where he does his work. So that kind of gives a sense of, of how the domestic spheres and the economic spheres were much more merged back then than they are perhaps today. So really, until about the mid-1800s or even later, it's more common to be doing work from home than it is to be doing work in a factory. For many, many centuries, the majority of people had worked in agriculture. And then from 1600 or so, around that period, you start to get the emergence of the sort of capitalist mode of production. So income starts to rise, you start to get the use of more technology and production of goods and so on. People want to buy more and can buy more clothes, watches, all that kind of stuff. That's really the fundamental cause of why people start to move into their homes to do work. Now, the reason why factories didn't spring up straight away, as people tend to think, is because when you first get demand for those goods, the sort of technology that you have to use is pretty sort of small scale. It's stuff that you can fit into your house. The other reason, of course, is that movement was quite difficult. So it's just sort of generally easier to be based at your home. And so what you get is this thing called the putting out system, which is a kind of big idea in economic history. And the idea simply is that at the beginning of a week or at the beginning of a month, someone who wanted to make goods, a worker, would go to a central depot, pick up raw materials, 
go back to their home, work on that raw material for a number of days or weeks or whatever, and then take it back to the depot and sell it. There's no factories involved, really. Workers are independent contractors. And this is fundamentally what the putting out system is and why so many people are working from home. One of the puzzles about the putting out system is why it isn't better known. People tend to think that workers went from the fields into the factories. But of course, there is this really important intermediate stage. Perhaps the most important reason why it isn't better known is because an unusually large share of workers involved in it were women. And women tend to be neglected by economic historians and they are underdocumented in primary sources. There are a few diaries and autobiographies of people that were involved in this system and they, and they kind of give us a sense of of what this kind of work was like. One interesting diary is from this woman, Sally Brown, who is living in Vermont in the early to mid 1800s in Northeastern America. And she describes her day-to-day life and what she does. Sunday helped milk morning and night, did some chores and picked tag locks. Monday spun, doubled and twisted 10 knots stocking yarn. Tuesday, Father went to Ludlow and sold my stocking yarn for five shillings a pound. There's this big question among historians as to whether workers under the putting out system, workers who were able to work from home, were better off or worse off than workers who ended up working in the factory system. It is absolutely true that there was an imbalance of power between the workers, who were many and widely dispersed and often didn't know each other, and the capitalists, basically, who lent out the machines, controlled the supply and access to raw materials. And you do see some evidence of the sort of downsides of the putting out system from contemporary commentators. There's a poem that was published in the Christmas edition of Punch magazine, 1843, which also happens to be the year The Economist was first published by someone called Thomas Hood, called The Song of the Shirt. Stitch, 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 in poverty, hunger and dirt. And still, with a voice of dolorous pitch, would that its tone could reach the rich, she sang this song of the shirt. So if you're of the view that the putting out system was basically quite bad and quite exploitative of workers, then it follows that you kind of welcome the shift to the factory system. It is true that workers get paid quite a lot more working in a factory than they do working at home. In a sense, that's not surprising because you're moving to a building which is purely dedicated to the pursuit of efficiency and the pursuit of profit. So therefore, workers are more productive. And if you're more productive, the theory suggests that you should be paid more. Of course, another big advantage of the factory is when workers are all crammed together, it's easier to unionise and to sort of collectively bargain. And it is, again, true that when you get the emergence of the factory system, quite quickly, you also get the emergence of trade unions. So there is an argument to say that the factory system is basically pretty good for workers. But there is another side to this story workers for one reason or another much preferred the putting out system to working in a factory and in a sense the fact that workers are paid more in the factory kind of tells you something and then it might not be entirely to do with productivity it might be because bosses have to sort of lure workers out of the comfort of their homes and that points to this idea that the putting out system could have had certain benefits that working in a factory didn't putting out workers, they would also do a lot of things like foraging, particularly in rural areas, for food and for fuel and and all that kind of stuff. And that 
to modern ears may sound incredibly kind of marginal, but actually the research suggests that in terms of the, the sort of supplement that it would give to people's uh, income, it could be really quite substantial. Even more important though, is this idea of having control over your time. And of course, this is a huge advantage for women. And what you see is that as you get more and more growth of factories, there is some pretty good evidence that female participation in the workforce starts to drop off quite substantially because it's just not possible for a woman to work in a factory all day and take care of a child. So there's a strong argument that, that even though workers are paid more in a factory, at least in the short term, their quality of life might have been higher working at home. Though, of course, the context is very different, many of these benefits will be familiar to the 2020 office worker. In particular, this idea that you're able to have more control over your time, but also the idea that being at home allows you to save on certain costs that you incur when you go into an office. It's the sort of 21st century equivalent of being able to, to forage for food. In 1920, Max Weber, the famous sociologist, wrote about the end of the putting out system and said that, you know, the separation of work from home for the first time had, he said, extraordinarily far-reaching consequences. Factories were and are much more efficient than working from home, but it comes at this cost that workers have less control over their lives and kind of less fun, and that's pretty significant. And so depending on how permanent it proves to be, today's pandemic-induced shift back to the home could have similarly far-reaching effects. Our thanks to Callum Williams. And for those of you still searching for the perfect present, Money Talks listeners can access a special introductory rate on a subscription at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the notes for this episode. And if you subscribe now, you'll be just in time for the bumper Christmas double issue out on December 17th. My colleagues have been working on it for months and it's full of all sorts of delights. It is every year. You'll really enjoy it. I'm Patrick Lay. And in London, this is The Economist.